Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the Yoga Hour. Now, I don't normally make announcements at the beginning of our show, but I did want to make sure that all listeners heard this important message. You may or may not be aware that there was recently a fire at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in the Temple of the Eternal Way. There will be a benefit concert for restoring the temple on Saturday, August 26th in San Jose with several amazing, inspiring musicians. Even if you're not able to attend the concert in person, I strongly encourage you to join me in making a donation to the Temple Restoration Fund via the CSE website at csecenter.org. Now, I want to get back to our program. We're going to be discussing Swami Vivekananda, a key figure in the introduction of Vedanta and yoga philosophies to the Western world. Swami Vivekananda was the first Swami to come to the United States. He arrived in 1863. I'm sorry, 1893, and spoke at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago. His writings are still widely read in, all the way up to today. I'm delighted to have pra, Pravrajika Brahmaprana join me today to discuss this spiritual dynamo. Pravrajika Brahmaprana is a member of the Sarada Convent in Southern California since 1973 and an ordained nun or Sanyasini of the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Brahmaprana has been a Vedanta representative of the Hindu Catholic Dialogue, sponsored by the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, as well as interfaith councils and initiatives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. She's been a frequent guest lecturer at schools and colleges in America and has participated in interfaith and scholastic seminars in America and abroad. She's currently the resident minister of the Ramakrishna Vedanta Society of North Texas. She has compiled and edited several books on Vedanta, including The Complete Works of Swami Vivekananda, Volume 9. You can find out more about Brahmaprana and the Vedanta Society of North Texas at their website, Vedanta DFW, stands for Dallas Fort Worth, VedantaDFW.org. You can also find them on social media on Facebook and YouTube, and those links are on the homepage of their website, VedantaDFW.org. Welcome to the pot, the yoga hour. Pravrajika Brahmaprana. I'm delighted you could join me today on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Before we dive into our dialogue about Swami Vivekananda, let's begin <laughs> with a moment of contemplation, a yoga moment. Let's begin as we mean to go on. Let's start by bringing our attention to our body in space, just feeling our body, whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking or driving, just feeling our body. 
And now turning our attention to the breath, just noticing as you take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling the warm air flowing out. Continuing to follow the breath and just resting right here, right now. Here's something to contemplate. This is from Swami Vivekananda, which was quoted in Yogacharya O'Brien's book, The Jewel of Abundance, at the beginning of her chapter called Superconscious Meditation. Here's Swami Vivekananda. Meditate. The greatest thing is meditation. It is the nearest approach to spiritual life, the mind meditating. It is the one moment in our daily life that we are not at all material. The soul thinking of itself free from all matter, this marvelous touch of the soul. Oh. Once again, Brahma Prana, welcome to the Yoga Hour. Thank it's you. just a true pleasure to have you as a guest to discuss the life of Swami Vivekananda and his impact in writings. As I mentioned, he was the first Swami to come to the United States, and it's amazing to think that that happened all the way back in 1893, that he was here to attend the Parliament of the World's Religions, and we're going to, I'm sure, be discussing that where his speech was very well received. And then, uh, although writings from India, including the Bhagavad Gita and other Vedic literature had come to America early in the 1800s, Swami Vivekananda was the first person to bring the teachings here. He was the founder, eventually, of the Vedanta Society here in America, as well as the Ramakrishna Mission and Mutt in India. So I wanted to start by asking you, from your perspective, why is Vivekananda important? Well, that's a wonderful question, and uh, it's a lengthy answer. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> What's interesting was when um, Barack Obama, as president, uh, addressed the Indian parliament, uh, he said, and I'm quoting, you have shown that the strength of India, the very idea of India, is its embrace of all colors, castes, and creeds. It's the diversity represented in this chamber today. It's the richness of faiths celebrated by a visitor to my hometown <clears throat> of Chicago more than a century ago, wow. the renowned Swami Vivekananda. He said that holiness, purity, and charity are not the exclusive possessions of any church in the world, and that every system has produced men and women of the most exalted character. Mm. So these words of Vivekananda are as soul-stirring today as they were in 1893, and that's a significant testament to his impact on America. But let's deep dive a little further. What was his appearance at the Parliament of Religions over a hundred years ago? Well, frankly, Americans were taken by surprise. Uh, when this foreigner aroused and inspired them with the message of their innate divinity, the goal 
of God-realization, the unity of existence, and the harmony of religions. Those four points. At the end of the Swami's message, there was a stampede of women who climbed across the parliament benches just to get close to this man of God who had uttered it. Mm. In fact, to hold the audience at the parliament, Vivekananda was then saved as the last speaker of each day. Mm. And such was the impact of Vivekananda at the Parliament of Religions that in 1976, the Smithsonian Institution recognized the Swami as one of the 29 eminent foreign visitors who at the 1893 Parliament of Religions, quote, charmed audiences with his magical oratory and left an indelible mark on America's spiritual development. Wow. And because of this, this is why Vedanta is now here to stay. So <clears throat> let's uh, go a little bit into his address at the final session at the parliament. Yeah. And that's where he really cemented his attraction with Americans. And it was, of course, a great help that he spoke beautiful English mm -hmm. and that he was very self-possessed. He was just like a soldier. And it's an incredible and majestic soldier. And um, he wore our clothes and spoke our language. And so he talked straight to the American people. Do I wish that the Christian would become a Hindu? Mm. God forbid. Do I wish that the Hindu or Buddhist would become Christian? God forbid. But each must assimilate the spirit of the others and yet preserve his individuality and grow according to his own law of great growth. So here we see an expansive personality with an expansive message and yet a very concentrated message as well about spiritual growth. This was so non-threatening, non-proselytizing, it was an invitation to open up one's own heart and mind to an ancient non-sectarian tradition and drink in its waters of spirituality. And that is why um, Father Thomas Keating, wonderful holy man, Catholic, um, who started an incredible interspiritual dialogue at Snow Mass, mm -hmm. uh, so, say today Vivekananda is recognized as the pioneer of interfaith dialogue. Mm. And because Vivekananda founded his American roots as Vedanta and not the more culturally termed and loaded term of Hindu, mm -hmm. Westerners were able to um, avoid a knee-jerk reaction to reject what was foreign sounding right. and thereby alien and to accept something that seemed open and available to them. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, in my own personal experience, yes, this is what drew me into Vedanta. Mm -hmm. Ramakrishna was just very strange sounding at first, and but it was through Vivekananda and his works that I was really drawn uh, at the feet of Sri Ramakrishna. Oh, lovely. So... Um, his Western mission was clear from the start. He said, I propound a philosophy which can serve as a basis to every possible religious system in the world. And this, which in America 
attracted Christians and Jews and many followers then became hyphenated Vedanta Christians or Vedanta Jews. And we have many, we even have Muslims within our congregations. So furthermore, by publishing his four yogas in beautiful English, and he always had really good editors, um, Bhakti Yoga, Raja Yoga, Karma Yoga, and Jnana Yoga, Vivekananda answered America's need to explore the essence of Vedanta in a language that they could understand. So as the Swami himself prophesied, the written works were to make out of dry philosophy an intricate mythology and queer startling psychology, a religion which shall be easy, simple, popular, and at the same time meet the requirements of the highest minds. Mm. And indeed, Vivekananda attracted the highest minds in America with his two tours, one in 1893, which I believe was four years, and the other one in 1900. He attracted the likes of Nikola Tesla, mm -hmm. the discoverer of the electromagnetic field, um, um, William James, uh, the father of American uh, psychology, Sarah Bernhardt, the famous actress, Emma Calvey, just John D. Rockefeller. <clears throat> he had a private meeting with him where he <clears throat> is very dramatic. He really uh, laid it out how he could uh, benefit America through donations. Jane Addams, a social activist. Um, so it goes on and on and on. Yeah. And he founded two Vedanta centers in America at that time, excuse me, one in New York, <clears throat> the Vedanta Society of New York, and one in San Francisco, which is now the Vedanta Society of Northern California. So <clears throat> what's important is that Vivekananda did not come here and look down on us. Yeah. He didn't proselytize. He didn't convert. Nor, he, nor did he change the central message of his, of his whole orientation, which was spirituality and spirituality alone. So interesting, in the 1960s, when I was first introduced to Vedanta in college, in Los Angeles, <clears throat> that was the time of the great church exodus. Yeah. And it was due to the disenchantment with church authority, dogma, and the business of religion. And since the 1960s, American scholars and clergy have regarded Vedanta as one of the official voices of Hinduism, largely due to Vivekananda's impact at the 1893 parliament. Mm and the standard he set for his emissaries in America. And to this day, we have uh, our swamis who are going to the world's parliament of religions to speak. Okay. So it's no surprise because Vivekananda at the parliament of religions in 1893 is considered the pioneer of interfaith dialogue. Uh, and American born Vedantists are drawn to Vedantists interreligious an academic mission in the West, a huge movement of inclusivity and harmony. <clears throat> and that is what most of our centers in America and Europe mm -hmm. um, have done is they hold interfaith dialogue to uh, demonstrate this important message of Vivekananda that the goal is God realization. And there are so many corollaries connecting our traditions and that we can draw from other traditions to re-inspire our own uh, faith search. 
I just came away from the Gret Center near Paris, where we had a huge uh, interreligious, interspiritual dialogue after actually that went on for several days. And it was not only speaking, but also sharing uh, traditional um, uh, uh, rituals um, to open the minds of those who were attending to the, the spiritual connection in each faith. And what it does is it cements our own faith. Yeah. And we, we, we take away the trappings of churchism and we began to really think in terms of spirituality. Okay. And I do have to say that I have been influenced by uh, wonderful spiritual leaders of many, many different traditions mm -hmm. uh, because of that breadth and depth of Vedanta. So I wanted to um, ask more specifically, we've, you've covered it beautifully, um, the, the um, 1893, uh, his talk at the Parliament of World Religions. Can you give us a little bit more of a background of uh, what was his life like before that point? So in particular, I know that uh, Ramakrishna was his uh, guru. So what do we know about his uh, Vivekananda's early spiritual development, when he became interested in spirituality, and how did he find Ramakrishna, his his guru? Well, interestingly, his, um, his father was a lawyer. Uh, uh, Vivekananda Naran at that time grew up in a large extended family. Mm -hmm. It was considered wealthy. His mother was religious in her own way. I mean, she uh, she wanted you know, a spiritual son. And when he was born, there was a light that went over Varanasi. Uh, it was a token of, uh, you know, of an incredible spiritual leader who was born at that time. But there was no connection with Ramakrishna at that time with the family. In fact, um, he had two sis older sisters and uh, uh, a couple brothers, I believe, maybe more. Um, but his father tried to dissuade Naren from getting involved in religion because his own father had left home and had become a wandering mendicant. And so what happened was um, in Vivekananda's class, um, his professor, Hasty, uh, uh, was explaining Woodworth's um, excursion and um, where the state of trance is referred to <clears throat> and which the poet had had a glimpse of while contemplating the beauties of nature. <clears throat> and it was Professor Hasty who explained such an experience is a result of purity of mind and concentration on some particular object. Mm -hmm. And it is rare indeed, particularly in these days, I have seen only one person who has experienced that blessed state of mind and he is Ramakrishna Paramahamsa of Dakshineshwar. You can understand if you go there and see for yourself. Ah. So that was Naran's introduction, but he went, you know, as um, uh, interested in the Brahmo Samaj, which did not believe in um, the uh, ultimate Advaita Vedanta. Mm -hmm. And he was a real doubter. But mm -hmm. interestingly for Westerners, he had our voice. So his doubts were our doubts. Mm -hmm. And so he led us right by the nose <laughs> to the feet of Sri Ramakrishna because he doubted him at every turn. Oh. And Sri Ramakrishna just turned it around through his love, through his words, through his touch. Oh. Um, and of course, the touch 
the famous touch of Sri Ramakrishna is what changed, which revolutionized his mind. Mm. During his first visit to Dakshineshwar, Sri Ramakrishna took him into a separate room and he said to him, you have come so late. Now how these words hit Narayana, I mean, what do you mean by that? And how I yearn to unburden my mind to one who can apply and appreciate my innermost experience. Well, Narayana went away baffled, you know, who is this crazy man? <laughs> and then he went back. Yeah. And during his second visit, um, Sri Ramakrishna lost no time in imparting the vast universal realm of Adoita to his disciple by touching him. Mm. And let me just read uh, uh, from his biography. The touch at once gave rise to a novel experience within me. This is Naran speaking. With my eyes open, I saw that the walls and everything in the room whirled rapidly and vanished into naught. And the whole universe together with my individuality was about to merge into the all-encompassing mysterious void. I was terribly frightened and thought that I was facing death for the loss of individuality meant nothing short of that. And unable to control myself, I cried out, what is it that you are doing to me? I have my parents at home. And at that, Sri Ramakrishna laughed, stroked his chest and said, all right, let it rest for now. Everything will come in time. Wow. But then, the third visit, Naran, Sri Ramakrishna went into a trance and touched him. And for those of you who don't know about Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna regularly went into samadhi throughout the day. Mm. Uh, and Naran lost all outward consciousness. And when he returned to normal consciousness, Sri Ramakrishna was stroking his chest. And it was at that time uh, that um, Sri Ramakrishna found out and verified where Naran came from. He came from the realm of the seven sages. And um, there is a beautiful description in Ramakrishna's biography of a little baby going up into that realm uh -huh. and beckoning that sage to come down to earth. So in, in the language of Vedanta, Vivekananda, along with Altogether, seven disciples of Ramakrishna are considered Ishvarakotis, and that means an ever-free soul who are born again and again to help uh, mankind, uh, humankind, lift up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, Sri Ramakrishna also transmitted to him the experience that was higher than jnana, and that of vijnana. Seeing God in everything. Mm -hmm. And that was the experience that Sri Ramakrishna gave his own Adoita Vedanta Guru, uh, who, who had only that knowledge of Brahman, but not but beyond that to see Brahman in everything. So it it is a, it's a, a tremendous power that comes. Naturally, the Adoita experience is the highest experience of oneness, but the power the highest power is to live in this world and see all as Brahman. Mm, that's beautiful. So I, I wanted to um, ask you, I, I have um, don't have many books that uh, talk about Vivekananda and his life, but I know that Phil Goldberg in his book, American Veda, which traced the um, you know, introduction of uh, yoga 
uh, into into America. Um, so he writes um, that after Vivekananda's years in America, and I'm not sure if Vivekananda was aware of this, but it had been extensively covered, you know, apparently in the press back in India. So Phil Goldberg writes, um, Vivekananda had left India as a nameless sannyasi, but upon his return, he was greeted as a triumphant hero. And then Phil Goldberg quotes an Indian scholar and statesman Karan Singh as saying reports of his success in the West had poured into India during his absence, creating in his countrymen a new sense of pride in their great spiritual heritage, mm -hmm. which is which is just really so interesting. He goes away. I guess it's that, you know, can you be a prophet in your own country? You have to be recognized somewhere else first. And then you come back and he's like famous. In yeah. India, right? So how did his fame in India contribute to his ability to, uh, you know, do the remaining work that he did, which was to found a whole other uh, organization, right? Well, it was to, uh, yes, to found the Ramakrishna uh, Mott and then also the Ramakrishna Mission, which was a break from the traditional Advaita Vedanta uh, path uh, to serve God in all as the living God. Yeah. And that is something that is extremely revolutionary in the um in the in those uh who follow the Dasanami tradition, the Shankara's order. Um because of his philosophy of karma yoga, his understanding of karma yoga, mm -hmm. uh, karma yoga in itself, it's not just a path of purification, it's a path to realization. And with that vision that we are serving the living God. And he galvanized the youth. His first relief work was the plague in Calcutta uh, after the Ramakrishna mission was established. But even the direct disciples were against Vivekananda about this until Vivekananda told them, told Turkey, I am here to serve the living God. And with tears in his eyes, he, had, he went into Baba Samadhi and and shared in the most, oh, in the most uh, uh, inspiring uh, passage of his life, how that is our goal in life to serve the living God. And that way you also become liberated. Mm. And um, uh, that Sri Ramakrishna himself uh, taught him that in his room when he was asked what were the... What did the followers of the voice of a tradition, what did they follow? And Ramakrishna explained, well, they, you know, read the scriptures, they um, uh, serve, the, you know, serve the devotees, uh, show compassion for all. And then, and then he, Ramakrishna went into Samadhi and said, compassion, no, not compassion. Serving them all as living gods. Mm. And there were many in the room, but it was only Vivekananda who stepped out and who said, I have heard this message and I am going to broadcast it throughout mm. the world, mm. serving the living God. So he lifted karma yoga, as Sri Krishna did in the Gita, up and beyond what the Dasanami had thought karma yoga to be, only a path of purification to the higher realization. Instead, it was a path to realization in and of itself. In and of itself, yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And and so this inspired the youth as well to help contribute to this plague yeah. relief and other relief, disaster relief operations in the yeah. Ramakrishna mission. Yeah. 
Well, as a reminder to our listeners, today on the Yoga Hour, my guest is Brahmaprana, Pravrajika Brahmaprana, a member of the Sarada Convent, Southern California, and also the um, resident minister of the Ramakrishna Vedanta Society of North Texas. We are discussing Vivekananda's life and work, and you can find out more about Brahmaprana and the Vedanta Society of North Texas at the website Vedanta DFW, standing for Dallas Fort Worth, VedantaDFW.org. That link will be on our website at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website at theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. We just started producing a monthly newsletter, which includes highlights of prior episodes of The Yoga Hour and describes upcoming episodes. So join us by signing up for that mailing list. Brahmaprana, I really wanted to turn now to Vivekananda's writings, uh, which, as I mentioned in my introduction, are still widely read today. And you mentioned that he wrote four classic books, which I understand were based on a series of lectures. And the four books, uh, there was one for each of the four types of classic yoga. So karma yoga, raja yoga, jnana yoga, and bhakti yoga. Um, his book on Raja Yoga was published in 1896. And again, in American Veda, Phil Goldberg writes, uh, Elizabeth D. D. Michaelis, Michaelis of Cambridge University calls Vivekananda's book Raja Yoga the first fully fledged formulation of modern yoga, marking a seminal moment in the meeting of ancient India and the modern West, which I loved. So, and that was his book on Raja Yoga. Um, this idea that a book published in 1896 was the first fully fledged formulation of modern yoga is is fantastic really when you think about how long ago that was did you want to comment at all on on that what phil goldberg was uh, mentioning uh, on the raja yoga really that was uh, on all the four yogas right um, which appeal to all the different dimensions of our personality but of course raja yoga that touch touches the heart of those who are drawn into uh hindu spirituality through hatha yoga and um it's um so naturally um that is actually one of the classes i give in dallas uh to show that uh, really raja yoga Yes, uh, physical exercises are very important, asana and all of that, pranayama. But it's also much more than that. Um, it's it's uh, uh, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi, as well as well as the yamas and the niyamas. And, um, and of but course, what you're, describe, what you're describing there for listeners who aren't familiar, those are the eight limbs. Those are the Sanskrit names for the eight limbs of yoga, which you may have heard about. But um, basically, it's... Uh, uh, ethical principles are the yamas and niyamas, and then uh, you know breathing um, pranayama, which is uh, you know breathing. Uh, it's not not really right to call them breathing exercises, but anyway, breath control, um, and then interiorization is prachahara, and then um, and then the the process of meditation is the concentration, meditation, and samadhi. So anyway, those are the those are the English names for the what you just mentioned. I just wanted to make sure no one was lost. <laughs> Here we go. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so when I asked you about what writings of Vivekananda we should focus on, you mentioned that his book on karma yoga, that it was actually Vivekananda himself who said that it was his greatest. And you've already touched on the importance of karma yoga and how he really 
um, really focused on it as a different definition. So, but let me begin by asking, um, how does karma yoga, in your view, fit into the other three classic yogas of bhakti yoga, jnana yoga, and raja yoga? Well, that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> first of all, um, how does it operate? How does this karma yoga operate? Well, it's a very, very deep yoga. Um, just to be a karma yogi uh, or yogini uh, in itself, um, here the practitioner can be an agnostic or an atheist and work with detachment with a desire to be free. And that personality will evolve. Uh, will evolve through seva yoga, this idea of serving the living God. Uh, selfless service. Uh, when we're working for the good of humankind, that means there is no pride or self-congratulation uh, for being selfless. So that has an effect on our uh, on our character. Um, um, and when we develop it and realize that it's really worship of the divine in all beings, whether one's chosen ideal or the oneself in all, then we really go even deeper into our spiritual uh, goal. Um, now, in bhakti yoga, uh, karma yoga is offering all our work uh, to our chosen ideal. And that culminates, we begin as work and worship. We keep the two separate. Then we begin to strive to work as worship. And then we come to the realization if we are consistent and regular in our practice and in our meditation, that work is worship. One actually feels one is worshiping one's chosen ideal, and that comes with a vision of reality. And so, I should mention, for those who aren't familiar with bhakti yoga, so bhakti is devotional yoga. It's a yoga of the heart of devotion. And you're basically saying that, you know, that, that work becomes devotion. Uh, you know, in in this way that you just described. So please go ahead. Yes. And the idea of the chosen idea, when people come into uh, our tradition, they, they want to know, who, what is my chosen ideal? Well, that comes to an aspirant. And that is the focus where you meditate in your heart. Uh, and we'll come to that with Raja Yoga um, on a particular aspect of God. And that leads you to the highest. Um, it's not possible to jump to the highest without proper training and preliminary spiritual practices. So we 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 emphasize that bhakti yoga in itself can, can take you to the highest. So this bhakti yoga then is offering all work to the chosen ideal. And that culminates in the mood, in the spiritual mood that my work is is worship one actually has the vision of god and those who is one who one is serving so raja yoga uh, is the yoga sutras of patanjali but in the front matter of raja yoga we see how vivekananda has brought in elements of tantra and actually raja yoga is the word that the tantra scriptures use for yoga mm -hmm. um, because in tantra Raja Yoga goes to the highest, whereas in the Sankhya school, um, uh, the Yoga Sutras go to a dualistic realm. 
So Raja Yoga is the title that Vivekananda chose to show that following the Yoga Sutras as a spiritual aspirant with the background of Vedanta, one can attain Advaita Vedanta. Uh-huh. And in that front measure, and just to mention, so for listeners, so Raja Yoga in English, it's probably would be referred to as a yoga of technique. You know, med- includes meditation technique and and those types of things. So I'm sorry, go ahead. And it's called the Royal Yoga. Translated royal yoga, yes. But in the Yoga Sutras, of course, there's step-by-step procedure how we can attain the ultimate. And uh, part of those are the yamas and the niyamas, the observances and the restraints that we practice, ethical virtues and so forth. Uh, to purify the character. And then as uh, the doctor here explained also, then the practice of asana is important, pranayama to a certain extent, and then of concentration and then meditation and samadhi. So um, so this Raja Yoga, in Raja Yoga, Karma Yoga is using work as a means to develop concentration of the mind. Mm. So Work is not just physical activity. Right. Work is mental activity. Right. And that's where this yoga comes in. The higher stage of yoga is actually using the mind to control the mind. Right. Because if we stop to consider and uh, just uh, stop to consider, we are able to observe our mind. Are we not? Especially in mindfulness meditations. Yes. And science tells us. Anything which you can observe is matter. Yes. So this mind of ours is actually subtle matter. Mm -hmm. In other words, we are not the mind. Mm -hmm. But we can use the mind, purify the mind to go beyond the mind. And that is karma yoga in Raja Yoga. So it's a means of thought control, self-control, and mindfulness. That is karma yoga according to Raja Yoga. (laughs) Wow. So meditation and renunciation of the fruits of meditation are also karma yoga. Mm -hmm. We don't sit down and get up from our seat and say, ah, I had a good meditation, or I have had such and such an experience. No. In our tradition, we know very well those who claim have not had. Those who have truly experienced Mm -hmm. Uh, a God-related experience, never feel that I did it. It came through grace. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, so I just one to... last yoga. Okay, one go ahead. Jnana yoga. Karma yoga in Jnana yoga is practicing the witness self, mm. which is free from activity, knowing that you are not the doer, not that you don't, that you stop doing, Right. But you know, you know, deep within yourself, uh, you are connected with that witness consciousness. So you see, you see from another plane of consciousness who is doing. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I actually um, thought it would be nice for listeners to hear a little bit of uh, Vivekananda's uh, writings, which I was very uh, touched by. I, I did get a copy of the, the first volume of his collected works, which includes um, the, the karma, his book on karma yoga. And the first chapter it starts with is titled Karma in its Effect on Character, which you've already kind of touched on. He begins with defining the word karma very broadly. 
as all mental or physical action that we do. Vivekananda then traces the development of our character through all of the thoughts and actions that we have taken and the things both bad and good that have happened to us. So here's actually what he wrote. The word karma is derived from the Sanskrit kri, to do. All action is karma. He then continues, every mental and physical blow that is given to the soul by which, as it were, fire is struck from it, and by which its own power and knowledge are discovered, is karma, this word being used in this widest sense. Thus, we, were, we are all doing karma all the time. I am talking to you. That is karma. You are listening. That is karma. We breathe. That is karma. We walk. Karma. Everything we do, physical or mental, is karma and it leaves its marks on us. So I was very intrigued to think about karma in this way as formative for our character and as this more broadly uh, defined way that he talks about it as everything we do, which as you mentioned, includes both our actions in the world and also thought. Um, so um, why do you think that Vivekananda begins his this book on karma yoga by looking at the effects of our actions on our character? It's just an interesting place to start. Because that's where we begin with our character. Yeah. And that's why the yamas and niyamas are so important because it's about character development. Right. Uh, practicing truthfulness. Mm -hmm. um, uh, ahimsa. You know, in fact, Swami Brahmananda, one of the foremost disciples of Ramakrishna, was asked... What do you think of Gandhi? Was he a spiritual man? And he said, through sheer ethics, he is knocking at the highest door of spirituality. Mm -hmm. So any one of those yamas or niyamas can take us to the heights mm -hmm. by practicing them. So yes, karma is also actions we have done in previous lives. Yes. And you need not believe in reincarnation to be a Vedantin. But um, certainly many have had the experience of past lives, not just people who claim, <laughs> but real-life <laughs> souls who, who know. Um, and so that explains a lot of things that happen to us, um, good and bad. Uh, it's not just the karmas we accrue in this life, but in past lives. In past lives, and, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I did want to uh, read a little bit more of uh, what Vivekananda wrote. Um, he continues on in this section about, you know, karma as um, determining our character. He says, if you really want to judge the character of a man, look not at his great performances. Every fool may become a hero at one time or another. Watch a man do his most common actions. Those are indeed the things which will tell you the real character of a great man. Great occasions rouse even the lowest of human beings to some kind of greatness, but he alone is the really great man whose character is great always, the same wherever he be. Yes. I just I just thought that was so oh, it's so true. And, and so and and plus just so you know well written. So did you want to comment on that? And it's 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 inspiring that right yes. here and now we can practice yoga, yeah. um, and it, uh, it 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 alerts us to be aware of our thoughts, and thoughts matter, and um, they change us. And if negative thoughts can change us for the worse, positive thoughts can change us for the better. 
and selfless thoughts can um, can transform us. Right. And so yoga is something that we can practice every moment. And to really see a spiritual giant who is doing the most menial task, but is engaged in karma yoga is so elevating. Mm. At, uh, it, it is such a teacher to know that even those who don't see us as we're working, we can elevate ourselves in doing the most menial tasks. Right. I was also struck by by reading um, this uh, book, his book on um, karma yoga, that he wrote this in English. So it's not a translation. This is actually his words. Yes. What effect did this does this have on your appreciation for, for his writings, that it's not a translation? I mean, Yogananda does this as well, but for some reason it just struck me as I was reading that these are actually how he said it, you know, down exactly as his thoughts were. Well, once... Um... You know, I, I shared with you that I was more drawn to Vivekananda because, you know, he spoke our language. Mm -hmm. and But there was a, a power in his words. Mm -hmm. And I, it makes you sit up straight. And I one day asked uh, uh, one of the great souls in our order. And at the time I joined, there were so many realized souls in our order, disciples of direct disciples of Ramakrishna. I asked one who I was very close to after my own guru passed away. Some books have a special spiritual power, do they not? And what would they be? And the Swami said, yes. And in our tradition, that would be the Gospel of Ramakrishna, the Bhagavad Gita, mm -hmm. the 10 major Upanishads, and the works of Vivekananda. Uh -huh. And one really feels that energy that comes, lifts off the page yeah. And that is what made me a nun, you know, really. Yeah, oh, that's lovely. Well, so uh, Vivekananda then uh, continues writing about our motivations for our actions. And he writes, if a man works without any selfish motive in view, does he not gain anything? Yes, he gains the highest. Unselfishness is more paying. Only people have not the patience to practice it. It is more paying from the point of view of health also. Love, truth, and unselfishness are not merely moral figures of speech, but they form our highest ideal, because in them lies such a manifestation of power. In the first place, a man who can work for five days, or even for five minutes without any selfish motive whatever, without thinking of future, of heaven, of punishment, or anything of the kind, has in him the capacity to become a powerful moral giant. It is hard to do, but in the heart of our hearts, we know its value and the good it brings. So this was just a beautiful, uh, you know, paragraph about, you know, um, uh, really the way that i've heard karma yoga described in the past is this you know selfless service which is what he's describing here um would, did you want to uh, comment on on what i just read um i i was so intrigued and drawn into his karma yoga i did a whole series on karma yoga according to vivekananda it's a prescription for well-being as soon as we start thinking of other people and doing good for others, just without any spiritual input, that changes us. And they found that with, with uh, vets coming back from the war. Uh -huh. 
uh-huh. uh, the, this mission to to send send these vets out to help people build ho- homes to feed the homeless. It had a tremendous effect on their health. And imagine putting the spiritual into that as well, trying to feel the living presence in those we're serving, how that elevates us. Mm-hmm. Not only does it help us health-wise, but it helps us spiritually, intellectually, morally, in, ev- in every way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful prescription for well-being. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great description. Thank you. Well, I wanted to give you a chance to share perhaps a quote or part of Vivekananda's writing that is your particular favorite that you might want to share with our listeners. And these were ones that I just, you know, chose. I started reading and I was just marking up my, my copy saying, oh, I could say this, I could say that. There's so much there. I just so much. I just skimmed the surface. But at any rate, what, what would you like to share? Um, there's no one I mean, there are so many things of Vivekananda, what he said that uh, inspire me. But one that I've often quoted is this one of his bodhisattva nature. Um, He really was here to serve humankind. And as Ramakrishna told him after he, after his first taste of Nirvikalpa Samadhi at at, uh, Kasipur Garden House, he said, I am going to lock that experience in a chest because you have work to do. And that work was the uplift of women in India. I established, uh, helped to establish the first convent in the world's history that is self-governing by women, the Saranamak of India, and also schools uh, for the underprivileged and orphanages. I mean, just countless hostels, educational facilities, hospitals. So he here he says, I feel my task is done. At most three or four years more of life are left. I have lost all wish for my salvation. I never wanted earthly enjoyments. I must see my machine in strong working order and then knowing, meaning the order, and then knowing sure that I have put in a lever for the good of humanity in India at least, which no power can drive back. I will sleep without caring what will be next. And may I be born again and again and suffer thousands of miseries so that I may worship the only God that exists, the only God I believe in, the sum total of all souls and above all, my God, the wicked, my God, the miserable, my God, the poor of all races, of all species is a special object of my worship. Wow. Just Gave me goosebumps there. Mm. <laughs> That's really good, as you said. Just a lot of, you know, a lot of power. Power um, and love for all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We are coming to the end of our time together. I've really enjoyed this opportunity to learn more from you about Vivekananda's life and to share some of his writings with our listeners. In closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to share? Well, whatever your path, um, go for it. Go for it with the ideal that you wish to attain the highest and to serve others. And by serving others, you will serve yourself, not your little self, but your higher self. And take the best of any tradition you can, and that will lead you to the highest. Beautiful. 
You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of The Yoga Hour. My guest today has been Pravrajika Brahma Prana, the resident minister of the Ramakrishna Vedanta Society of North Texas. She has compiled and edited several books on Vedanta, including the complete works of Swami Vivekananda, Volume 9. You can find out more about Brahma Prana uh, and the Vedanta Society of North Texas at the website vedantadfw.org. And again, DFW is Dallas-Fort Worth, vedantadfw.org. This link will be on our website along with this podcast at theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Brahma Pranaji, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. I really appreciate Thank you. It. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. A real pleasure. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. There is daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m. Pacific, in the afternoon at 4 p.m., and the Monday evenings at 7.30. Again, all those times are Pacific time. There's also every week a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word meaning a gathering of truth seekers, and that happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. Another podcast that you may be um, you may find interesting is the Kriya Yoga Today podcast with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, which includes presentations from classes and talks that she's given. You can find that Kriya Yoga Today podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There's also a link on the csecenter.org website. Wanted to remind you once again about the recent fire in the Temple of the Eternal Way at CSE headquarters, the benefit concert that's coming up called Love's Fire on Saturday, August 26. I encourage you to attend the concert if you can, as there are many outstanding musicians. Also, even if you can't come, there's a link to donate to the Temple Restoration Fund via the CSE website at csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when my guest will be Ayurvedic teacher Kate O'Donnell, author of the Everyday Ayurveda Cookbook and the Everyday Ayurveda Guide to Self-Care. We'll be discussing Ayurvedic strategies for staying healthy in the fall. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast, and we so appreciate it. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, Christine Sote, and Lauren Leidinger. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.